Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, Daniel A. Jacobson. He goes by Dan. He's a computational systems biologist at Oak Ridge National Laboratories. And it looks like they've done some superconductor modeling of COVID-19 and have some uh, interesting insights. So, Dan, thanks for coming. How are you doing? I'm fine. Thanks. Thanks for the invite. We're happy to be here. Yeah, if you would, can you give me some background on, on Oak Ridge and then what you do there normally? Well, Oak Ridge is, is part of the national laboratory system in, in the United States, Man- typically run by the Department of Energy and managed by subcontractors. And so we're, we're part of a science ecosystem under the aus- auspices of DOE, but we actually get involved in lots of different types of research including biomedical research. And so this is the COVID-19 work that we're doing fits into the, the biomedical side of, of what my lab does. And normally, what's your work about before, before COVID? What were you doing? As a systems biologist, we're really interested in trying to understand the combinatorial interactions between molecules and cells, really at all sort of layers of biological organizations. So whether that's what's going on in the genome or epigenome, what's happening with gene transcription, so the transcriptome or the protein expression from the proteome or the metabolome or microbiome, really all, all omic layers, how all those interactions between molecules and cells lead to emergent properties of organisms, so traits or disease states. And then, of course, how all of that is conditional on the surrounding environment. So we're really trying to get integrated pictures of what's happening inside cells that, that leads to measurable outcomes of the organism. And, and of course, diseases are, are of a particular interest on the biomedical side. We apply these sorts of approaches in which we use a lot of data analytic and, and increasingly AI and explainable AI algorithms to find these patterns. We apply that to a very broad range of application areas from bioenergy, which is part of our primary DOE mission space, so there we're looking at plants and, and plant traits and the surrounding microbiome or phytobiome. We're looking at microbial species or the organization of, of the microbiomes themselves, all the way over to, as I mentioned, biomedical, biomedical initiatives where my lab in particular has uh, an interest in neuropsychological conditions. So we do a lot of substance abuse work, whether that's opioids or cocaine or tobacco or alcohol use and the underlying genetics and omics patterns for that, all the way over to cardiovascular cancer, the suicide research into the neuropsychology side. So pretty broad broad spectrum of of uses. For us, the algorithms don't really care what the species are. (laughs) We apply, develop in one area, we can apply in another. Then, of course, as COVID-19 ramped up, um, that was an obviously important area for, for us to be to be involved in. Wow, okay. So, yeah, tell me, what's, what are you trying to model with COVID-19? Well, we're really trying to t- 
tackle this from a number of different angles. So part of what we're doing is really studying the the viral biology of, of what it's doing once it gets into human cells. And so what are all the interacting components of the virus and the virus interacting with human components? We're doing a lot of molecular evolution and three-dimensional protein work to help tease apart why this coronavirus seems to be quite different from other coronaviruses, and then how this particular coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, is changing during the course of, of the pandemic and what functional implications that may have. Oh, very interesting. Are you looking at all the, the various sequence data and the, the trees of its mutations and evaluating where it's going mutation-wise? So yeah, now we're we're tracking all of the all the sequence data that's being generated around the world in in doing a range of different evolutionary studies and finding interesting patterns in in that evolution that that may well impact pathogenicity and transmission and and looking at that in in a very holistic way and looking for co-evolutionary patterns that, that again give us interesting functional insights. We've also spent a lot of work on of course the the, patho- the causes of pathogenicity, pathogenesis in, in severe COVID-19 patients. So we're trying to understand what are the molecular mechanisms for severely ill COVID-19 patients that, that explain all the, all the symptomology that we're seeing in these patients. And, so, and then, of course, we're trying to understand how environment affects all of that, how it, it affects transmission, how it affects actually COVID-19 outcomes. So, well, in, um, in addition to the sequence data, do you have also the patient data? Do you so know we, if these sequences, you know, caused more illness or not? Or all that? Well, we, we do have patient data. So we're, we're fortunate to have the electronic health records for 23 million people going back 20 years and that we get nightly updates of. So we're certainly tracking all the patients in that population that have tested positive for COVID-19 and are tracking all of their clinical data over time and using that to help inform our you know, molecular mechanistic insights and, and explainable AI algorithmic approaches to try, try to find interesting clinical associations with either the mechanism or the outcomes. And that helps us interpret all these sorts of different types of, of results. Well, tell me some particulars, what, you know, if you're allowed to. What, what are you sure. seeing so far? What kind of trends? Now, of course, so one of the papers we published um, this year, actually two, two different papers that, that tie together mechanistically, are, are really focused on, on understanding the, the pathog- pathogenesis that's happening. So we, we got these insights from the molecular evolution studies that showed us that it appears that one of the key proteases in the virus, 3CL-PRO, is attacking a regulatory protein that itself regulates a, a key human transcription factor called NF-kappa B. NF-kappa B has interesting functions in regulating both members of the renin-angiotensin system, specifically the ACE gene, as well as components of the immune system. So in the virus, dysregulating that transcription factor, we think has downstream effects. And when we look at the renin-angiotensin system, which is something that we've been interested from an evolutionary point of view for quite a while, because many different species of coronaviruses target different elements of the renin-angiotensin system, or RAS, they're using different proteins of that system to get into cells. I'm sure everybody's heard that the ACE2 protein in, in the RAS 
pathway is is one of the ways that SARS-CoV-2 latches onto in order to get in, into cells. Other coronaviruses use other members of that same RAS pathway. And so it's been an interesting evolutionary question, why are they all focused on this pathway? So we, we've done some very large-scale computational analysis of genes in that pathway, really all, all human genes, across about 17,000 different what are called RNA-seq data sets. So this is gene transcriptional information, but, but genome-wide across about 57 different tissues, across a population of about 1,300 people. And we've, we, those are all uninfected individuals. So we've used some of our newly scaled up explainable AI algorithms with those data sets to give us a picture of how things are normally regulated. What are the, and this is a very sophisticated way to get at regulatory circuits, showing how genes are co-regulated together. And when you do that, you can get often inferences into their common function. So we've done that for this study. We did that across the population for lung tissue. And then looked in within the renin-angiotensin system, what are the other genes that are co-regulated within them? What are the regulatory patterns? And what, what other genes outside that traditional view of the pathway are being co-regulated? And that gave us immediate, immediate insights into the, the normal regulatory patterns, the sort of dynamic tension between different parts of the renin-angiotensin system, whose primary job is really to regulate blood pressure and fluid homeostasis, so fluid balance. What are those dynamic tension points in, in those pathways? And then what else, what other functions are they associated with? And we immediately saw connections into the calicrine kinin system that leads to bradykinin and regulatory elements that, that tie it into the immune system and specifically into inflammatory responses. So with that as a framework, this sort of supercomputing framework of, of interpreting the system, then we were able to look at gene expression data taken from the lungs of COVID-19 patients and the lungs of healthy individuals via a, a process called bronchoalveolar lavage. So this is actually the insertion of a bronchoscope down into the terminal bronchi, the lungs, and simply injecting saline in and sucking it back out and doing that about 15 times so that you're actually getting a wash, a lavage of that internal surface of the lungs where, where normally you're exchanging CO2 for oxygen. So and in doing that, you're getting a, a sampling of the cells in that environment, both the immune cells and probably some of the epithelial cells in that, that key area down in the alveoli, down in the air sacs in your lungs. And by looking at the gene expression data from those cells, we start to see what's happening in normal patients at, at that key interface and what's happening in COVID-19 patients who are severely ill. And we saw this dramatic dysregulation of the RAS pathways, as well as the calicrine kinin pathways. So right at the very top of the RAS system, there's a regulatory circuit that involves the vitamin D receptor. It, it normally represses the expression of renin, which is one of the first steps in the RAS pathway. And we noticed that the vitamin D receptor itself was severely downregulated. And a couple of genes that catabolize vitamin D, chew it up, were severely upregulated. So to activate the vitamin D receptor, you need vitamin D or vitamin D3. So in chewing that up, you're reducing the activation and, and COVID-19 has severely downregulated the presence of the vitamin D receptor itself. So you would expect to see sort of renin expression explode and really open up the floodgates on the RAS pathway. And that's exactly what we see is we can see this dramatic overexpression of renin. That's um, really interesting. What, 
quick question here. So now that you've established this, is there a possibility of co-infection if someone else you know, has another type of coronavirus that targets a different part of the rat's pathway at the same time? Would that be prevented? Or do you have any insight into whether there would be a co-infection successful or not? I don't see any reason why two different coronaviruses couldn't, couldn't infect somebody at the same time. We're certainly seeing reinfection of different strains of SARS-CoV-2, but I mean, other coronaviruses that cause the, the so-called common cold, I wouldn't be surprised at all to see co-infection. And, you know, equally, we're very concerned about influenza co-infection with the SARS-CoV-2. So I, I, don't, I don't think there's likely a cross-protection. The other thing we saw really, there's normally this very tight balance in the ren and angiotensin pathways between the ACE2 gene, which we've talked about is also happens to be the one way that SARS-CoV-2 gets into cells, and, and the ACE gene. You've probably heard of ACE inhibitors. It's a common way to regulate blood pressure in people who are hypertensive, have high blood right. pressure. And so what we see in the COVID-19 data is the ACE, the ACE gene itself is dramatically downregulated, like 800% downregulated. Wow. And that's going to cause a tip in this balance in the RAS system. And that's going to tip it towards pr- producing a peptide called angiotensin 1-9, which will go on to bind the AGTR2 receptor. When that event happens, that causes a resensitivity cessation of the bradykinin receptors. That's its primary role, that binding event. Normally, when the bradykinin receptors see a lot of bradykinin, they, they desensitize. They sort of stop listening to the signal. Well, this event forces them to keep listening, even if they don't want to. So when we trace back up the calicrine kinin system, we see right at the top of that pathway, it's normally also inhibited by a gene that keeps it under control. So the gene is called serping one that encodes the C1 inhibitor protein that is severely downregulated in COVID-19 patients. So again, in this sort of parallel pathway, you're, you're taking the brakes off the top of the, of the pathway. You're letting it the sort of floodgate um, open. And several of the proteases that are responsible for the stepwise production of bradykinin are upregulated. And the protein that's responsible for converting bradykinin to desarge bradykinin, an alternative in, in another active form of bradykinin, is also upregulated. So you're going to get this increasing production of bradykinin. The ACE gene itself is not has a role not just in the RAS system, but also in the calicrine kinin system, in that it's it's normally responsible for degrading, for chewing up bradykinin. It's the, the key way the body degrades bradykinin. It's highly expressed in the lungs. Normally, the the, degrade, the the reduction of ACE now means that all this bradykinin you're synthesizing now is not being degraded. So you have this huge buildup of bradykinin we're calling the bradykinin storm. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. When, when bradykinin binds to, there are two different bradykinin receptors. One of them is typically associated with pain sensitization and the other with a number of downstream effects having to do with, again, blood pressure regulation and especially permeability of your blood vessels. So when you bind those receptors, you you kick off through phospholipase A2, you kick off what's called the arachidonic acid cascade, which leads to an increase in prostaglandins. The effects of that cascade of events is that you're going to open up gaps where 
in blood vessels that are receiving the signal. So it actually creates gaps between the cells in your blood vessel walls. And realize you're, you have about 70 to 100 square meters of surface area on the inside of your lungs. It, your lungs are built for gas exchange, right? And so this incredibly high surface area lined chock-a-block with capillaries where that gas exchange is going to happen. You can imagine opening up gaps, holes in those capillaries and allowing fluid to pour into your lungs is not really good news. And we see exactly that happening in severe COVID-19 patients. Worst or worst news perhaps is that also that increase in prostaglandins is going to lead to a big um, increase in the synthesis of a, of a really cool polymer called hyaluronic acid. We, hyaluronic acid shows up all throughout biology. Bacteria produce it. That sort of sliminess of a bacterial culture or biofilm, that's hyaluronic acid. Snails produce it. Snail slime, that snail trail that's all slimy, that's hyaluronic acid. We as humans normally produce hyaluronic acid in various places on our body. In joints, it's, it sort of is, is used as a lubricant in joints. In your lungs, normally it's a sort of cell surface lubricant that helps you move a mucus across the cilia in your respiratory tract. It also forms a very thin protective layer against bacterial infections. Unfortunately, in COVID-19 patients where it's severely over, overproduced, and we can actually see this in the autopsy reports and in the histology slides from, from deceased COVID-19 patients, we can see this whole layer of hyaluronic acid. And we also, we also know that a decrease in ACE expression should lead to a decrease in the enzymes that actually normally degrade hyaluronic acid. And in the expression data, that's exactly what we see. So you're oversynthesizing it and you're not breaking it down anymore. Now, hyaluronic acid is a very potent hydrogel. It can absorb more than a thousand times its own weight in water. So now you have a condition, you're building up this hyaluronic acid, you're leaking fluid into your lungs. And so what you would expect is, is that to form a hydrogel. And this helps explain why we have these, these horrific outcomes in ICUs once we've intubated and are trying to ventilate COVID-19 patients at that stage of disease, the mortality statistics are really, really bad because it probably doesn't matter how much oxygen you're pumping into the lung, it can't diffuse through this hydrogel to do the gas exchange that you need to do. Pathologists talk about, you know, the, the data from autopsy shows that the weight of lungs from COVID-19 patients is double the weight of a normal um, uninfected lung. Oh, wow. The pathologists talk about it feeling like a water balloon full of jelly. And so we have multiple lines of evidence sort of supporting this. Also, you've probably heard about the radiological findings of chest x-rays from COVID-19 patients, these ground glass opacities, these white spots all over the lung. Well, I've heard about that a bit, yeah. Yeah, we, well, we know from other conditions where people accidentally have too much hyaluronic acid in their lungs, their lungs look exactly the same. They have those same ground glass opacities, the same radiological finding. And sort of alarmingly, a paper that came out a couple of weeks ago of an asymptomatic group of patients found half of the asymptomatic patients had those same ground glass opacities in their lungs. So even though they're not perceiving it, damage is being done in the lungs of asymptomatic patients. So we're spending a lot of time, we've built collaborations with, and we're interacting with long hauler groups of long hauler patients people whose symptoms are, are persisting for months. And we're mapping those symptoms also onto this mechanistic model. So initially I've told you about 
kind of what we think is going on in the lungs. But if we if we project this as a local model of infection, so from the data analysis, we can say, okay, what happens if at other points in the body the virus can infect? And we know that this virus exhibits a lot of tropism, meaning it can infect many different tissues. And we, from the gene expression analysis, we can we have done of the 57 different tissues, um, we can predict pretty well where we, we expect it to infect. When we look at those points of likely infection and we look at the, the symptoms that would be caused um, by an excess of bradykinin, well, if, if you have too much bradykinin in your muscles and joints, you're going to get myalgia, really sore, achy muscles and joints. We see that it's a very common symptom in COVID-19. If you have too much bradykinin in your brain, you're going to have dizziness and headaches and cognitive impairments, brain fog. And these are all very common systems. You can have fluid-based ischemia. You're not getting enough oxygen because the fluid is leaking into the surrounding tissue. We can see that in MRIs of COVID-19 patients. If this happens in your intestines, that means water is going to be pouring into your intestines. So you're going to have diarrhea and cramping and pain from the excess bradykinin, also very common in COVID-19 patients. If this happens in your heart, that will also lead to big shifts in potassium, which will lead to arrhythmia and sudden heart failure, which we also see in severe COVID-19 patients. We can also look at what happens in people who are hypersensitive to ACE inhibitors, because you know, realize that the virus is acting as a, as a massive ACE inhibitor, much more so than, than you would do pharmacologically. Okay. But in, in people who are hypersensitive to ACE inhibitors, they develop dry coughs and they lose their sense of smell. And they often have um, these neuropsychological side effects as well. So this combination of, you know, whether it's ACE inhibition, which will lead to the more presence of bradykinin, or the upregulation of the calicrine kinin, you kind of get the same results of excess bradykinin leads to these list of symptoms that are really identical to what we're seeing in COVID-19 patients. Viewing this as a local model of infection also helps explain why you get this a strange collection of symptoms in different, in different COVID-19 patients. Some of them will have some set of symptoms, other patients will have other sets of symptoms, and some of them will overlap. Well, we think this is really due to where the virus um, ends up infecting, what tissues or organs the virus ends up infecting in different individuals. Some of that um, may be simply stochastic, it's random of what tissues it reaches before the immune system tries to get control of it. And it may well be environment, environmental and genetic factors that mean you have different levels of ACE2, for example, in some of your tissues. And we see that we, we can observe that in our population scale studies. People can have very different ACE2 expression levels and other, other members of the RAS system expression levels across the population and in different tissues. Well, so a quick question how, here. If someone's, if sure. someone's been sick before, if they've had a heart attack, let's say, would they have uh, ACE2 I guess down regulation or up regulation in their heart tissues, you know, as it as it scars and heals over. There there can be effects on gene expression from from previous from previous injury for sure. And in the clinical records, we're looking at a lot of comorbidity information, trying to say based on what what's happened to you before, what past events or what diseases you have now, what impacts are those going to have on your COVID nineteen outcomes. And we, we definitely see signal there. And in many cases, we, we see it's actually a combination of conditions built up together, you know, viewing them as a group together is a better predictor than any individual component, any individual disease. There are a few exceptions to that we've found that are quite striking that were 
I'm writing manuscripts about, so we can't talk about right now, but the clinical records have been incredibly in, informative in giving sure. us insights into in mechanisms, confirming this mechanistic model, and, and also identifying, helping to confirm drugs that we're predicting would help on this model, helping to confirm retrospectively that they may in fact be doing that. So that's sort of all the bad news. The, the good news is that in this process, we've identified a number of existing pharmaceuticals that hit different parts of this mechanism. So there's a, um, vitamin D is an easy starting point. There's a great study out of Spain using calciferdiol, which is a vitamin D analog. It's just one step down in the metabolic pathway. And a study out of, out of um, Boston and, and others coming along nicely is a great group at the University of Chicago working on vitamin D that we're interacting with. That's the, the Spanish and the Boston studies have shown clinical efficacy of, of vitamin D helping COVID-19 patients. Oh, there's also a component of this in, there's a, a drug called Icavident, which is a bradykinin receptor inhibitor. There's a nice small scale study in the Netherlands that's showing efficacy in COVID-19 patients. And you, I'm sure you've um, heard of, of dexamethasone, seven large clinical trials done with dexamethasone and a big WHO meta-analysis um, showing efficacy of dexamethasone. Well, dexamethasone inhibits phospholipase A2, which is the very first protein activated by the bradykinin receptors. So we already have three different drugs in um, various scale clinical studies that are doing exactly what our mechanistic model would predict they should do. There are a number of other existing drugs, some that will help inhibit the top of the calicrine kinin system, others that will inhibit the, the biosynthesis in the calicrine kinin system. There's a monoclonal antibody that will inhibit KLKB1, which is one of the, the key biosynthetic genes that leads to bradykinin. And we've now since discovered, as we've expanded this model, other, other drugs that um, we would predict to be protective, have a benefit in COVID-19 patients. And by looking at who happens to be taking those drugs before they were even infected, we found, in fact, that those new new drug candidates, the clinical data supports that they, they could be helpful. So we're pushing very hard to spin up with clinical colleagues, large-scale, properly designed random clinical trials, especially to, to explore combinatorial therapies. We think that it's, it's likely a combination of, of drugs together to hit multiple parts of this mechanism at the same time, including drugs that inhibit hyaluronic acid synthases, as well as direct use of, of enzymes that degrade hyaluronic acid. We think by using combinations of things, we have a, probably a good chance of shutting down the core parts of this mechanism. My analogy for that is if you sail your boat over a reef and you punch five holes in the bottom of your boat, you probably hope you have more than one cork. Um, you plug just one hole, yeah. you're still going to be sinking. Well, it sounds like you guys have figured out a lot of a lot of insights so far into how COVID affects cells, and there's a lot of points of attack now, which is great. Yeah, I think we've there's there's a ton of more work to do, but we're getting some really interesting insights from both the the viral biology side as well as the human pathogenesis side, and we're doing a yeah, lot if, of. Work if we can, the, can we talk about the the viral biology side? I wanted to ask you about all the sequences and the variation. Are you able to infer? you know, pathogenicity or method of action or phenotype of the virus from the, you know, from the different base pair constituencies of it. Yeah, so we, we have a paper that's, that's published now in Molecular Biology and Evolution that 
was our first step to compare SARS-CoV-2 to previous coronaviruses and start to start to figure out why SARS-CoV-2 is behaving so differently from other coronaviruses and, and elements of how it's behaving similarly. What can we learn that's similar and what can we learn that, that's different? And that led to a number of, of, of new insights, including this interaction with NF-kappa-B that is part of the human pathogenesis model. But we've learned a tremendous amount from that comparison to other, other coronaviruses. And we have a, a nice paper under review now looking at how the virus is changing during the course of, of the pandemic. And there we're using tens and tens of thousands of um, different copies of the SARS-CoV-2 viral genome and looking at all the changes and trying to learn those changes and infer their functional impact in three-dimensional structure of proteins and the, and the structure of the genome itself to infer how those changes are gonna impact on pathogenicity. And then we can look about how all those changes in combinations of those changes are, are promulgating in the human population because we can tie those, those genetic architectures back to how successful they have been at spreading. And so by combination of those sorts of analyses, we're gaining, we think, some very interesting functional insights into how the virus is evolving and how that may be affecting its, its, its transmission and pathogenicity. So do you see any patterns? Like, are you, estimate, are you able to estimate? I, I have this question. So the first person to get COVID-19, if I label them number one, and then they pass it to number two and number three, do you know how many, like, if I get it today, would I be number 100? Would I be number 30? Would I be number, you know, 1,000? I'll call it a passaging number. Is there any sense or idea of that? And is there any idea of how, you know, SARS-CoV-2 has changed in terms oh, of function and ability? Yeah, we I, we have a pretty good sense of that. I mean, we can detect all all the changes that are happening and then, and then see how successful that version, that passage variant or haplotype or genetic architecture of the virus how successful that is by tracking those genetic architectures. We can see those that are dead ends. We can see those that are very successful. We can see how they transition between different series of mutations. Because you know, a new mutation is based on a background of previous mutations. And it's actually, we think, combinations of mutations together that sometimes lead to this sort of breakthrough event for the virus where it becomes broader, broader spread, for example. And so we're, we're trying to understand those patterns and, and this paper under review now, it has some nice insights into the changes that are happening and the, and the effects that they may, that may have, have on the virus during the pandemic. And then, of course, we're trying to understand the environmental component of this. So we have some, another paper under review where we've looked at the environmental component for other reasons we put together a very large environmental data set that represents environmental and climate conditions for every square kilometer of land on the planet. And so we can encode every position on earth with a, with a vector, a string of numbers about 414,000 elements long that represents that environment. So we've used that with our explainable AI algorithms and the COVID-19 data to understand environmental impacts on positive or negative on COVID-19 outcomes. And that's given us some really intriguing insights into potential environmental influence on this. And that has ramifications into you know, even public health policy and monitoring 
potentially around the world since we can project this this outward. What, what do you mean environmental, like temperature or, or what, what do you mean? Um, really almost anything you can you can measure. So from absolutely temperature and temperature swings, we have sort of daily resolution going back about 50 years on temperature, on humidity or aridity, on light spectral quality, what what wavelengths, what you know, intensity of light that all across the spectrum reaches the ground at every point on on Earth, from cloud cover and humidity and uh, everything you think of associated with climate or weather, or even soil properties. Lots of information about soil, soil types, soil water content, things that are going to affect biological systems to see how how would they impact and. It looks like there are some interesting environmental components that have that have uh, impact. So that's work that's also under review now. But we're we're trying to really get an integrated understanding from the virus side, from the human side, and the environment side of how this com- complex mixture of factors is is playing out in 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 our population as we unfortunately all experience this pandemic in one way or another. So what? I mean, what do you? I don't know if you could reveal it, but are you on the verge of any breakthroughs in terms of, let's say, viral structure on how to uh, bind materials to it so it can't enter cells or you know to stop it before it even starts to cause infection? Um, a lot of the work that we're doing on the viral biology is exactly that: is to try to understand that the 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 function of 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 the different proteins in the virus, so so that we can with our colleagues, ideally design antiviral therapies. And so that is, there's a lot of work going on in that. And one of the big collaborations we're part of, sponsored by the Department of Energy, is called the, the National Virtual Biotechnology Laboratory. And so within that construct, we often share our preliminary results with our collaborators in, in that network that allows us then to, to build very quickly experimental experiment, experiments that we can design to follow up on those on those insights we get from computation and, and evolution, and so that's exactly what's happening is we're designing whole whole new sets of experiments and and as well as structural biology with our colleagues to better understand mechanistically and physically what's going on, and then of course that with the goal of of being able to to find therapies that would block those mechanistic actions of the virus itself. So where's the best place for people to uh, see the papers that have been put out and all the knowledge you've discovered so far? Right now, we're going through sort of traditional scientific publications. So the three papers we've um, published so far in COVID-19, one of them is a journal called eLife. Another of them is is in a journal called Molecular Biology and Evolution. And another paper is on currently on BioArchive, which is a preprint server. So if you literally... If you Google our our name in COVID nineteen, you'll probably come up with quite a few of these. The Brady Kyan storm model and mechanism has, has gotten a lot of traction, so that's that's very easy to find our, our work there. And we're we have many other papers under review now that will be coming out hopefully in the not too distant future as they they make their way through the normal peer review and editorial process. No preprints for you, huh? For a I, I was kind of kidding, but I understand. yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, we do have one of the preprints out there, but the, these other ones were typically going through the through the normal journal process. Yeah, it makes sense. Makes sense. Okay. Well, very good. Well, Dan, thanks for sharing all this. There's tons of insights. This is great. Uh, this will be a very useful call for 
for anyone working on COVID-19 to listen to. So I really appreciate you coming. Sure. Um, and thanks for the invite. We're always happy to, to talk about science. And and I, I, I really want to mention that, you know, we're able to do this so quickly, largely because we're leveraging, um, we're leveraging a lot of technology and a lot of algorithms and a lot of know-how that we've developed for completely other areas of science, other areas that are funded by, by other programs. But we can use that same approach to really hone in on COVID-19. And additionally, that we're really leveraging on decades and decades of public investment into fundamental, fundamental biology, fundamental biomedical and biochemistry, where we can leverage a lot of existing knowledge and build on top of that to, to come to these interesting outcomes and, and models for pathogenesis. And so this, these are really your tax dollars at work. This is the benefit of the public funding of science that allows an entire community to sort of retool their efforts and tackle a horrifically complex and troubling problem like COVID-19. Yeah, no, well said. That's very true. Well, again, excellent, Daniel. Thank you so much for everything you do. And, and likewise to you, scientific communication is, is near and dear to our hearts and folks like you who takes the time and energy to, to help us talk to broader audiences uh, are doing yeoman's work. We really appreciate all the work that you do. Excellent. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.